Kopitiam Conversations. This is Kopitiam Conversations. I'm your host, Winston. In this episode, my guest and I go back almost 10 years. We had been colleagues previously at my former workplace. Dr. Antoun de Ricoeur is an associate professor at the School of Media and Communication at Taylor's University, Subang Jaya. A linguist and discourse analyst by training, Dr. Direker has branched out into areas such as creativity, professional development, and business communication. He has conducted training sessions and workshops for a wide range of audiences. His motto is Learn and Build. A Belgian national, he has lived and worked in Malaysia since 2009. Good morning, Dr. Antun. It's so good to see you again after so long and you know, I think it's been nearly two years, right, since we actually met each other yeah. face to face. Thanks for having me, right? It's always nice to have a, a platform in which I can share, I mean, some of my ideas and my experience. And, uh, and exactly. I hope that there's always one or two nuggets for somebody who I don't even know, right, in the audience right now. Existential oh, yeah, yeah. questions, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where is this going? Where am I coming from? Yeah, it's quite philosophical, actually. Uh, Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And you find, I think, a lot more people thinking about that now, especially being in lockdown. What am I doing here? Is there more to life than just being in a lockdown? No, I think it's very true what you're saying. And first, I read about it, then I and I sort of realized that I was actually going through the same reassessment of a lot of things. And, and, I, and I, I think honestly that a number of my sort of recent major decisions have been influenced by, by the COVID-19 lockdown. And, uh, and so it's nice not to be like, you feel I'm not an outlier here. This is sort of a trend in which people, we are forced to, to, to kind of look at these uh, building blocks, you know that story about the big rocks that we have and that sort of props up our lives, so that, that's, that's, that's good, yeah, yeah. And this is a platform, of course, this podcast is a platform for our audience to actually get some bite-sized inspiration from. So I, for those of you who are listening in, know that you are not alone, you know, suffering and, and questioning <laughs> about life, you know, in your own isolation. Know that we are all going through the same thing. But on the flip side, I was also reading about how uh, mental health counsellors deal with this and they say you should also realise you're not celebrating alone either, right? I mean, there is of course the, the challenges of being uh, locked down, if you like, but there is also normally when we celebrate, um, you know, achievements or happiness, that's also a very social thing. So uh, oh, yeah. you can also reach out, I think, to, to have that too. I mean, I, I read, I mean, this yep. was an interview in, in one of the online newspapers with a, with a, with a counsellor and, and a practitioner, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. You know, a lot of people are posting up pictures of getting vaccinated on Instagram. And I think that's also reason to celebrate because we feel as if we are one step closer to actually achieving some level of freedom, being able to go up after our second dose, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I noticed, I mean, I actually like seeing those... Uh, oh, yeah, those, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sayatala di vaccinasi. Oh, yeah. I had mine uh, on Friday last week, so that was a bit of an adventure because I went to UKM All right. in Bangi. Um, nice. I think I clicked the wrong box, otherwise, <laughs> I could have um, 
gone down the road here, but uh, I, I enjoyed the outing. I, I, I drove as slowly as I could just to enjoy being outside and in the car. Yep. If I saw a road roadblock, I would just go right to the roadblock so I could chat with the uh, Angota police. <laughs> oh yeah, I showed them. My suggestion says that my appointment is here. So <laughs> yeah, 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 that Legit. was it. So Antun, you are very familiar with Malaysian customs and and how things work in Malaysia. Well, kind of. There's always that that disclaimer there, kind of, because you, you're <laughs> never really certain of how things work in Malaysia. Now, you have spent 12 years in Malaysia. Tell us how you heard about Malaysia from Belgium and what made you decide to move to hot and humid Malaysia? <laughs> First off, I'd like to say that every expat has a story, right? And every expat is, in right. a sense, unique. And I won't be different. So when I run into expats, then we all have our own sort of... Uh, explanation, account, story, justification, and so on and so forth. So it's, um, you need to know that I also lived uh, in the United States of America, upstate New York for a while, and I also spent considerable time in the UK. Coming back to Belgium, because I'm a Belgian national, the, the northern part of Belgium, and we speak Dutch, uh, but Belgium is a trilingual country, right? So we also have French and German. So anyway, coming back to Belgium at that point, I realized that as a tourist, you, you only get to sort of scratch the surface of any place. And of course, we, we need to be tourists, but, um, uh, but I always felt that sort of pull, if you like, that I, I wanted to live elsewhere as well. And, and the way it went this is a bit like this. In, in the 1980s, after my Belgian master's, I applied for a scholarship because when I graduated, um, there was this massive graduate unemployment. And when I talk to some of my ex-students alumni here as well now, I can relate to it. It's not exactly the same, but we would be leaving uni or college. And there was literally nothing there for us. Really? So I thought, I mean, yeah, I mean, not perhaps lawyers and doctors and engineers, but within, let's say, the non-STEM, right. humanities, languages, history, philosophy, and uh, I had studied linguistics, by the way, which is almost like a straight ticket to the breadline, right? So that's <laughs> <laughs> unless you can right. be no, secondary school. Anyway, so I, so I, my my tactic was okay. I'm going to go for scholarships, so I applied left and right. I went through all sorts of filtering systems, and I got the uh, the British Council one just across the channel. So I was a bit late, so I did not have to, couldn't choose my own university, but I went to Reading. Nice. They have a campus here in Malaysia. Really? It's yep. sort of yep. nice to see the, the logo. Yep. Anyway, um, back then, I did a master's in linguistics. There was another master's in applied linguistics, and the pure linguistics was about six, seven people. And I think we were from four different countries, but the applied linguistics was about like I don't know, 15 to 20 countries, a lot of them from you know the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. So that's where I started meeting my first Malaysians, right? I made friends with the Malaysians, um, part of the cohort, right? right and right. Uh, so I stayed in touch on and off. Uh, of course, we had to be helped at some point by uh, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, internet and Facebook oh, yeah. to reconnect later on because, uh, and I, I really enjoy that sort of international um, ambience. Mm -hmm. 
I'm from Belgium, right? But basically, I always say we're all very kampung. Eh? We have 300 <laughs> people we know, right. and we don't move a lot. And we are happy to travel for one week to two weeks, and then we come back, and then it's back to uh, normal, right? We have a saying in Belgium, which is just act normal. That's crazy enough, you know? So uh, we don't encourage us to be really crazy, like moving. <laughs> Right. 10,000 kilometers or 6,000 miles across the globe. But um, another thing, when I was becoming restless in my job, because I, 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 uh, I think as an academic, you have to grow by challenging yourself. Oh, yeah. And you cannot be for 30, 25 years. I mean, you can, but it's not my style. So I became restless after a while, and then I was reaching out to people I had met, UK, US, uh, I remember Greece, and a good friend there, and also Malaysia, right? So uh, what made Malaysia at that time uh, appealing was, um, I also had this sort of romantic idea based on the children's books I was reading when I was a kid, where, you know, these adventures in the, the South China Sea, the exploration of the uh, tropical areas and I was lapping up those adventure stories I mean if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean I mean that kind of <laughs> so much buckling and yep. and, and, and uh, shipwrecked finding he didn't mention Malaysia at all no I mean this back then it was Malaya right or Malaya, it was just the, yeah. the Semananjung and, and Indonesia and Singapore um, yeah, Singapore. Singapore is of course, growing up in Belgium, the Dutch language part, we also read the, 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 the Netherlandic or the Holland, uh, oh, yeah, Holland's yeah. literature. And because of its uh, colonial past, yeah. there's a lot of literature in Dutch about the colonial period. Yeah, the Dutch East Indies um, at Indonesia, right? Yeah, which, we, which I also felt sort of, yeah, you, you learn about, you know, I remember reading about Chris, you know. The, the, right, right. The, and other things that were uh, part of uh, the culture around here. So that definitely was something that I... And then, of course, what makes Malaysia a relatively, if I may say so, a kind of low threshold intro into Southeast Asia is that because of its own past, its multilingualism, you can, all, you can almost like scope the region by just coming to Malaysia. And, and English makes it, of course, easier. I know people have gone through Indonesia, their Bahasa is, of course, much, much better, <laughs> much more fluent. Fasea. In my case, it's always a bit funny because there is always English there, but that makes it easy. And then I was also um, looking forward to living in the tropics. Are you familiar with SAD or Seasonal Affective Disorder? That yes. I suffered that a lot in yes. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the winter months, it's all dark and gloomy. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Cool. Yeah. And I've read stories about, uh, of course, Belgium is also relatively, we have about 10, 15 percent uh, yeah, Belgians <laughs> from, you know, Moroccan or Turkish background and origins. Okay. So I've read about families moving from the north of Africa to Europe and to Belgium. And they also suffer badly because the sun is not sort of, shining and beating yeah. down on us the whole day. Yep. So your vitamin D intake is uh, reduced. But anyway, so I thought living in, in, a, in a different climate where there is that sort of what I call stability or 
every day is pretty much the same, isn't it? I can look out of the window and I have no idea. There's nothing to tell me. In Europe, you can see that kind of uh, you know, progression, right? So, yeah. How do I dress for the day? It must be summer, right? Yep. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the summer is over, you know, I have to go back to school, first huh? of September or first of October. We, that kind of punctuation, as I call it, we don't have. Yep. So it kind of sort of evens things out and becomes gentle. Uh, so that, so the idea of the tropics and so on. But uh, Winston, I didn't sort of cut all my moorings immediately. Uh, I actually was on probation here from my Belgian contract. So I only decided later on to sever my time and move to Malaysia. You know, you, man you were mentioning about SAD and you know, it's only in the UK when I started to always check the weather forecast every morning before I step out of the house, right? Yeah. <laughs> at, at least from Malaysia, it's like, okay, so if I'm, if I'm going to go out, all right, it's going to be generally warm. So a yeah. t-shirt or a shirt and maybe shorts or, or yeah. jeans for a little bit more, you know, formal occasion or bring it up a notch, then you probably wear slacks or something. And, you know, that's, you're pretty much done for the day. You go into an aircon room and phew, all right. Um, and of course, from time to time, it rains. And then, of course, you know, we have haze every now and then. But, you know, it's just about strapping on a mask and, and that's about it. But yeah. I guess over there, we're talking about SAD and all. It's about, you know, having to bring, do I bring a light jacket or do I bring something that is thicker and provide me more warmth? Um, yeah. Okay, it's, it's a winter day. It's a sunny winter day. So how do I dress? Right, I've always got this <laughs> confusion on, on how to dress back in, and then what it feels like, right? Yeah, what it feels like. It can be, it can be sunny and cold, but it can be really, you know, like if there is a bit of wind and it's sort of chilling you left yeah. and right. And the wind chill factor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've honestly never had so many t-shirts in my life <laughs> okay. as uh, collected over the past uh, twelve years. Uh, I know about t-shirts, yeah, I've got some cringy ones as well with you know, some slogans on those t-shirts and all that which I want to get rid of as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the humidity takes uh, getting used to, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you... Initially, I would leave light, my uh, condo unit, I had to go back immediately, I mean. I mean, it's difficult get drenched. without the air conditioning. It's quite difficult. Yeah. According to the Malay Mail report on January 11th this year, with regards to the brain drain phenomenon, Nearly 1.7 million Malaysians are employed outside the country, with of course Singapore being the biggest beneficiary with 54%, uh, followed by Australia about 15% and United Kingdom about 5% of those Malaysians outside of the country. Now you on the other hand, you had reversed this trend and chose Malaysia. You have just told us the story of how you arrived at Malaysia. So what were the motivations for you to remain in Malaysia? 12 years is a pretty long time, actually. Yeah, it's a long time. And, and I have friends and acquaintances who worry about me and they ask me, what are you still doing here? Because the, the script is that I would be an island hopper, right? Uh, four right. or five years and on to, I don't know, Laos or maybe Korea. I don't know, anything like this. So I, I, I'm sort of bucking that, uh, that trend. So the friends ask me, what are you doing here? And I think that's important because the doing is what I find is something to me as a, as a non-Malaysian, Malaysian 12-year Malaysian, uh, uh, resident. Um, 
I always find there is lots to do. I don't know if you see it the same way, but I feel there is something about Malaysia where if you're willing to work hard and, and you have ideas and, and you have the space to develop initiatives, there is you know, things that can be done, right? I mean, it's yeah. uh, I get a, a sense maybe when I lived in the US, one of the things you get is a sense of space, which you don't have in Belgium, right? In Belgium, you open your kitchen door into the back door into the garden. You, you're already in another city, right? I mean, it's <laughs> in the US, you, I learned you, people told me, do you want to go to a, a gig tonight? I said, yes, why? Yes, it's a banjo playing band. Okay, well, why not? It's the US, right? right? So I get into the car and then we drove for two hours and a half just to see a gig. <laughs> so space means something else. And I find in Malaysia, time, of course, is different too. And But there is a sense of, yeah, things need to be done, can be done if you are, if you're willing to to pick up the baton, and 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 I think that's sort of. Uh, I realize there may be a bit of status inflation, but generally, I'm getting or I have been getting opportunities here that I probably would not have had in, back home. Uh, not because the market is saturated, but it's a bit more regulated. You know, in the United States, they, uh, the, the, the idea is that you don't count, right? It's not you. We hire you because you have a skill set and a qualification. Right. In Malaysia, it's to me almost the opposite. We want you in and we would like you to be on the team because of who you are, right? And never mind the qualifications or the skills you have. We can relate to you. You can relate to us. And then things will grow from there. Yep. So I've been given opportunities for academic leadership, for research projects. I was even tangentially involved in, in uh, running a small business here and things like that. Right. Whereas back in Belgium, I would be more hesitant and, oh yeah, but I, I don't have an, a degree in economics. I didn't study business management. I I, so you disqualify yourself, and I'm not saying because there is a higher level of specialization, but it's it's because that that's the, sort of the mindset, right? Right. In Malaysia, I feel there is sort of a willingness to to. I mean, if you're willing to work hard and learn fast, that you can be given. Uh, so I, I think, to me personally, that was. Um, a discovery that I, I could be more. So that definitely kept me here. And I've been fortunate enough to to meet people, line managers, if you like, that, that encouraged that in me as well. Whereas in Belgium, they might say, yeah, but you don't have the right qualifications or you need to have five years experience. Uh, so I think that was interesting uh, because it, it kind of ties in with the way I see life. Uh, I see life a bit as an experiment uh, where you can assign yourself to a certain condition, right? It's not some sort of a, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but is it research that puts you in the control group or into the experimental group? We ourselves can we we can reassign ourselves to, and if you value personal growth and self improvement and professional development as I do, and, and to me that means lifelong learning. Um, Sometimes when I speak, <laughs> uh, I, I say my motto is learn and build and I will stay as long as I can learn. 
right. and or build. But if I'm not building anything and not learning anything, I might go. Unless, and that's the next stage, is <laughs> I, I feel I, I'm serving a, a community in sociology. Uh, you may not want to hear this. They often say that nations and communities are imagined. Huh? doesn't really exist. Yeah, imagine oh, community. So Benedict Anderson, right, or something like that. Say again. Uh, that book, um, imagine communities. What was it, Benedict yeah. Anderson? Right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I forget the, uh, the the earliest reference here, but um, but I always see it as um, as something positive. That you know, in Malaysia, it's all about nation building, isn't it? And about yeah, yeah. Um, harmony and. And that actually has to be imagined and then the imagination allows us to act on it. So I, I feel when uh, one of the reasons I'm still here is that I that I can be, belong to various communities. And of course, the main one would be the professional community of academics. But over the last few years, especially with the pandemic, I also reframe, if you like, my relationship to my students. Um, you may know that the original meaning of university yeah, in Latin is a community and then it goes on of, of students and scholars, right? Of, right. of professors and, and students. And I feel with the pandemic that uh, despite, you know, the whole virtualization that there is more of, uh, oh yeah, it's not me and you, it's all of us going through these challenging times yep. in a kind of learning uh, experience so that's definitely something that I, I feel and uh, but it's not that it was like okay I'm going to do this for 10 or 5, 10, 15 years. No, it's sort of oh yeah, come end of contract and then you sort of almost inadvertently <laughs> get it renewed. I mean yep. um, and then it's another year, another year, right? Time is playing tricks here, right? you know, that uh, I think of time as very um like uh, something you brew, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, it's five years, something like this. And all of a sudden, it's 10. And now all of a sudden, it's 12, oh, right? So, yeah. my, But the other thing that keeps me here, Winston, and that's one of the reasons why we are here, you and I, you make friends, okay? Yep. <laughs> uh, you meet yep. people. Um, let's say, not talking about COVID now, because that's... Um, that is a challenge, but generally, uh, Malaysian lifestyle, very outdoors. Um, yeah, there is time to, you know, lay back, huh? back. socialize. Yep. This can be around food, of course. Um, In Malaysia, definitely around food. <laughs> yeah. But I've also had uh, very, very nice memories of staff trips or going with friends on, on oh, yeah. hikes and, and uh, and I think in addition to the climate, of course, the nature and into uh, Tamanagara, I mean, that's unforgettable, right? I mean, that's, that's, oh, yeah. uh, so, so, so that, that becomes a, a motivation in its own right, I think. So uh, looking back over 12 years, I think I've had my fair share of initially maybe just uh, open houses, but then weddings, baby showers. <laughs> birthday parties uh, and I remember my first wedding just to a little bit of sort of that intercultural uh, differences a Belgian wedding usually there will be a church wedding a state wedding and then a reception and a, and a dinner party that is also a dance party 
So to right. make it to the dinner party, that's subject to uh, long negotiations between the two families going to be united because it's going to be limited to perhaps 120 people only. So if you make the guest list, it means something. So the first time I got an invitation to, uh, this was a Malay wedding actually, yep. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm just here for a year and a half and I make the guest list? <laughs> yep, you made the cut. But I realized that there is this abundance, this complete, I mean, this is overwhelming abundance of hospitality and the more the merrier. And, and when I got to the wedding, I don't say I was disappointed, I was just more like, gobsmacked to see I was one out of maybe 800 guests. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was nice. I mean, yeah, it was... Yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> I always thought Chinese weddings were actually quite overdone with, with a lot of people attending the, the wedding. Oh, yeah. I went to one in Kuching, Winston. There was, I think, over a thousand. Really? Wow. We had about eight or people at one table, and I think I went through 12 or 10 dishes. Yeah, generally speaking, I think uh, Malay weddings tend to be uh, more communal, a lot bigger, right? So yeah. um, I think I've been invited to Malay weddings many times before, and you yeah. know the the invitation card will always say "Sir Isi Keluarga," it means you bring you invite your whole family as well. So it's a more oh, communal yeah. thing for um, yeah. the Malay community. And also, of course, it, uh, I mean we've all gone through our cultural uh, training in our primers here. Of course, it doesn't matter what time you arrive or when you leave. Where I am from, that's also something that is relatively well regulated, right? right. I mean, yeah. if you are not seated when the dinner starts and you are 15 minutes late, um, that's usually not appreciated, right? Yeah. People might... Uh, so you, you're expected to be well in time. But generally, all the the, the, the parties I've been is you come and go, you, you help yourself to the food. Um, yeah. My background is, for instance, um, that you don't touch the food until the oldest person around the table digs in or starts. So I was told by, I remember this, you don't have to wait. You can just, I mean, the food is served, you begin. Oh, yeah. But it's not something that is inappropriate. I think it's still uh, uh, practiced in certain uh, families, whereby the oldest will always start. But I think no. that is slowly eroding away and you know, the practice is probably not, not being, you know, uh, you know, done very much anymore yeah. these days. Yeah, I mean, it's like, hey, those, those kind of ceremonies, just dig in, you know, I think it's just, yeah, yeah. Because I made I made people feel uncomfortable by waiting, right? It's like yeah. I'm forcing a certain expectation upon them. They felt uncomfortable. But I think, uh, Winston, when you visit someone, uh, when you go to an open house or you visit friends at home, yep. you would have to say hello or salam the uh, the eldest yes, yes, person, yes, first, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Because now I know that I have to sometimes look for that person. Yeah. The most it's usually a nine-year-old yeah. great-grandmother somewhere in the back of the house. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, in Malaysia, we always call someone older than us, you know, uncle, auntie, you know, that kind of... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Term of endearment. Nice. Yeah. 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 Out of respect, and of course, as I said, it's a term of endearment as well. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting you raise that because I also have to get used to uh, kids, uh, you know, calling your uncle is one thing, but, but not sort of... It's like ages mixed differently. In uh, I used to live in uh, near um, Bukit Gassing, I think, uh, and um, there is a, a football field, and 
I would go there for walks and runs, but people would play football. And I could see that this was from the age of six to the age of 55 or 56, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And playing my two teams. I think where I'm from, that would be looked upon as not done or weird. Maybe it's among family weird, members, right? yes, right? But among family members. Family, family, uncles, yeah, yeah, something like this. Uh, yeah. Because we would all come down from the bungalows or the uh, the condos to that same, uh, of course, people would know, right? There was a level of familiarity with each other, but um, I thought it was kind of cute, right? So yeah. <laughs> these football teams, uh, uh, sort of made up of uh, yeah, different ages. The so. junior team and the senior team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I guess football unites people that way. I, you know, um, we hear this many times, right? Football unites people, you know, whether through Coca-Cola advertisements or through what they are trying to propagate through professional football these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, which um, I think now is a good time to uh, segue into, you know, your career in education. Now, you had a teaching stint at University of Malaya for about um, more than 10 years ago. Was yeah. that your first teaching position in Malaysia? And how were you even recruited for this position? When I, when I was getting a bit serious about, I think I wanted to move, right? Um, initially, maybe just for two years, I had no idea. So I, through my Malaysian friends, they said, yeah, uh, University Malaya, which is also in Petaling Jaya, where I ended up, is especially in its faculty, Bahasa Dan Linguistic, it's very international, right? And they have a lot of uh, visiting professors from you know various parts of the world. Uh, they also have what I think called a start professorship. So they have one kind of uh, you know, beacon or lighthouse or or magnet that that has a special relationship to the faculty. So what I basically did was uh, a, a cold, uh, unsolicited uh, application where I wrote to the dean, you know, Professor Azira, and but that was a timeline of about a year, right? Because initially I would I was invited to do a two-week visiting professorship, right? So to get a sense of the lay of the land, and 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 uh, so it was not sort of a um, jumping straight into it, right? So I did two of those during that period. I was expected to hold a lot of workshops, lectures, meet graduate students, uh, staff, and that was a very nice and and. Uh, rewarding experience, so I, I did that. And then I met Professor, Professor Azira, the Dean and Deccan, uh, also in Europe when there was a, a Applied Linguistics Conference. And it took me a while, this was funny, right? I mean, <laughs> I thought, oh, she's kind of like developing an interest in me, but she was actually um, sort of sizing me up, right? So we had a few meets because I also had other friends uh, attending the conference. And I think looking back, this was sort of a kind of a job interview, but not the standard job interview. So we would have a couple of sit downs, meals, coffees, and we would sort of chit chat. But uh, sometimes I felt, yeah, actually I want to figure out if I would be a good person organization fit and a good person job fit because even though we as academics we we move around in these you know colleges and universities it's 
it's not one to one, right? And I can tell you because a Belgian university is not like a British one. Different history, cultural differences. So at one point, then I, I did apply. I, I did all the, the forms. Some of them, or many of them, were in BM. So I had a, a lot of translation to do. <laughs> Thank you, Google Translate. <laughs> Was it accurate? The translation from Google? Were they accurate? Yeah. <laughs> right. Just for your information, right? UM uh, was for me a natural choice because. I'm actually a public uni person, huh? so uh, in Belgium we do not have uh, private sector education or higher education. Right. Of course, we have training and we have, you know, uh, training institutions, and we have, you know, certain I mean, like a, a music school or something that can be a for-profit one. Right. But the uh, the ones that are getting you the diploma certificates. Uh, degree, PhD, it's all public sector, it's tax funded. So to me, a public uni is where it's happening, right? I'm a public uni product myself. (laughs) So that means that you are not, um, it's not about the bottom line, it's not about student enrollment, it's not student numbers, it's about other things. So that was for me, I mean, that's why UM initially was, I think for me, the uh, sort of yeah, natural extension of what I have been doing, yeah. So it was just the one all this while when you were um, coming over? Yeah, so I was here twice and then I made the, the leap and then I got here, yeah, I think in June 2009, I think, my Malaysian career of period, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now you taught at University of Malaya and much later you taught at Taylor's and Berjaya. So how yeah. is the teaching culture different in a public university? And saying now that you are also a you know, product of public university, so how is the teaching yeah. culture different in a public university compared to those at a private university? I think the culture, I mean the teaching, the delivery, the content, I, I can only speak for myself no idea what's happening elsewhere, right? But I think it's pretty much the same, right? In the sense that one of the things I didn't know when I did move eventually to the private sector, I was curious. I mean, of course, I mean, as I said earlier, I'd like to experiment and learn. So I thought, yeah, let's let's try this. I mean, let's let's see where it goes. People often said it's about the money, actually. It's that was the least of my concerns. It was more like I had this high expectation that I would be working in a more innovative, forward-looking, creative environment. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize was that it's still MQA regulated. The leeway in which uh, private sector universities can uh, promote their own pedagogical project, to me, is limited. I thought I was joining a a completely different industry where you could be really, uh, you know, what's the word? I mean, be on top of everything, take decisions, do things differently. Groundbreaking, Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, you can just go into our thesaurus here and and come up with all these adjectives, which I thought I was going to be a part of. But it's the same thing. You have tutorials and lectures. I've been saying for 20 years, why are we still using those words? Because in the lectures, we don't lecture. And in the tutorials, we don't even tutor. 
We have time with the students. So can we do things differently? I was hoping to come up or to, to, to be in that context and to perhaps make a contribution to it as well. Maybe you meet a hundred students for two hours every two weeks, and then you meet small groups of 10 students as and when. More flexibility, more creativity, more keeping that sort of focus on what is what is the actual learning outcomes, but the way we achieve the learning outcomes may be detrimental to achieving the learning outcomes because the structure is so... That's the irony, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. We want students to think independently, but the whole system is based on dependence. Exactly, pulling you down because you are dependent on that. That structure. Yeah. But, but it's broadly similar. So even though a lot of my friends say, yeah, it's, it's a big difference and, and, and one is better or in some areas. But the one thing I noticed immediately was, uh, yeah, UM, UKM. I mean, these are, these are like cities, right? A sprawling, vast green campus. Uh, I remember having to take a taxi. I'm not kidding you. I had to go to the chancellery building or to the... Sombra Manusia, I remember at UM, I, I would walk there, right? right? By the time I get to HR, I would be ready for, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, oxygen tent, I guess, or, uh, <laughs> or, or a shower or a change. So I, Taylor's uh, was a brand new campus. And I think I was fortunate to, to, to be hired at the beginning of something exciting. And Winston and I were there, by the way. So I think we were doing something. 2010. Pioneering. 2010. Uh, we were there yeah. in the new campus. But oh. at UM, my 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 groups were much smaller. But I think that's nothing to do with public-private. It's more that at UM I was uh, in uh, Faculty Bahasa than Linguistics. So I was teaching a lot of linguistics right. subjects, and I think generally fewer students uh, study linguistics than media and communication. That's right, yeah. It used to be different, by the way. I'm old enough to have seen the uh, the arrival and growth of media and come, but that changed quickly. And of course, that's the same what happened to economics and business management. Over the last 25 years, things have become a bit more practical, hands-on, much more relevant to industry. Um, so more from credible, the abstract, yeah. Yeah, yeah, generic. And I am very happy, actually, that I have been able in this in this media and calm world to uh, to learn a lot, right, and to respect it as a as a as a serious discipline. And I see people worry about, for example, government communication around COVID, and I think, okay, that's PR, that's media relations, that's where we need well-trained but also strong academic evidence-based knowledge. Because initially the criticism was, of course, it's a bit touchy-feely, right? But yeah. over 20, 25 years, I, I think, Winston, you you probably can um, illustrate this, that it can be fact-based, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you get people to do something that's motivational psychology? One of my big problems with COM programs, not enough psychology. Um, it depends on the institution, I suppose, yeah. I mean, oh, all right, what, sorry. What they offer. I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, guess, don't mean, yeah. I don't mean one introduction to psychology. I mean, psychology for communication and media. Yeah, okay, then that's fair, yeah. I think there's not enough of that, yeah. Because we're in the business of getting people to do things with words and pictures, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. 
But I'm, I'm, I, I'm sorry if I'm slipping in perhaps a bit of my agenda, but I feel that every uh, discipline, no matter what you study, engineering, architecture, you need two things, uh, psychology, because that's about meaning, right. and you need to have a sense of business because that's about money. And if you do not inject that into a program, it might remain a bit disjointed from reality. Oh, yeah. um, we're teaching journalism. Our journalism students, do they know how the whole industry actually works and it's cost-cutting, doing things on the cheap, yeah. getting you know ready-made from newswire services, do they know that the number of PR consultants outnumber the number of journalists by four to one in the United States? And then you walk in with that idea that you are doing this heroic uh, stuff you see in the movies, state of play, right. required viewing on Netflix, is a good example of this because it at least shows the, the difference. But I'm just saying business and psychology, I find it's uh, is an important thing. Obviously, um, that creates a gap between what is taught at the university and what is actually caught in the industry. So yeah. you know, they, they go into the industry with that rude awakening. Oh my gosh, it's all about the dollars and cents. It's all about cost-cutting measures. And um, all right, the one who has the, you know, provides the lowest cost wins, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of Malaysians don't learn this until they eventually go out there and it's all, you know, basically down to dollars and cents. I think it's a challenge, but that's a good thing. I mean, if we have, um, and that's what I was also expecting to see in the private sector, that we had more, that we would be more nimble, yeah? that our programs could be reviewed differently and that we could have our finger on the pulse. But I think it's sort of same, and I understand the problem with quality assurance is you have to freeze the thing in order to measure the quality and to ascertain it. Yep. But the reality is that we would like to be not like an ocean liner flying a route between Rotterdam and uh, Johannesburg or something, right. but that we would like to be more nimble. Right? The kind of vibe I'm getting from young entrepreneurs in, uh, in Malaysia. Um, of which of whom I've met many uh, in Berjaya, for instance, because of our hospitality and culinary arts orientation, we had every week one or two, you know, people in their mid twenties, thirties. I always was shocked to see how much enthusiasm and vibe and, and entrepreneurial spirit I was getting from these <laughs> talks. Yeah. And then I walk into a meeting as a head of department, and it's like, is this Kafka? <laughs> I think MQA is a wonderful thing. Uh, I was there in Europe when we had the EFQM, uh, the European Framework for Quality Management. All right. Was there when we put our programs through uh, all sort of rigorous uh, checks and balances and testing. And I think there is, there is definitely something to be gained from this. But I do feel it's been pushed to an extreme where it becomes arbitrary. So if we are in 2021 still struggling with how many MLOs, I think, hmm, yep. what the point is it? So I feel that perhaps there should be a certain amount of trust. And of course, another system of, you know, separating, you know, the, the fly-by-night cowboys from the, the genuine institutions. 
and where we can differentiate and offer more choice, right? More choice. So then you can really choose, uh, especially if you're a parent, right? Because you put your kids through a system that will have an enormous influence on them in the next 40 years, maybe, of a life. How are Malaysian students' learning style different from those in Belgium? Are there any significant difference or anything particular about Malaysian students that you want to highlight? How are students different and in many, many, many ways, right? Because the background is different. Uh, what I notice here is that a lot of kids grow up in a bubble, very sheltered, um, supervised 24-7. And this may have to do with a security issues, safety, maybe some parenting style. I'm not sure if there is a cultural element. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think Asian, so. mom, they, I mean, I know these concepts. Collectively um, society, yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 So what I see is that on the one hand, because uh, my students then, 18, 19, they go through the same system. It's not as diversified as it is in Malaysia, where you can go to a vernacular school, you can go to any kind of international school. You may have a Canadian pre-U and still end up in higher education. So we have a much more homogenous group of students in our first SEM, second SEM. Right. So they come in and you are you have guaranteed the same skills. And the difference I find which is crucial is we teach the medium of instruction is Dutch, as spoken in Belgium. That's a bit sort of like the end. The difference. The Dutch has yeah. spoken in Belgium and the one that has spoken in the Netherlands. It? Yeah, it's like reg regional variants. Yeah. I open my mouth, a person from Amsterdam will know I'm from Belgium okay. and vice versa. Yeah. I'm a linguist, I can give you uh, a description, but uh, we don't have to. It's like American and British English or. Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Malayu, and, and Bahasa spoken elsewhere. Uh, yeah. So there are these subtle differences. Anyway, but they come in with, because they need to have a, a secondary school certificate, they have good Dutch language, communication skills, writing skills, reading skills. The medium of instruction is Dutch. Everything is in the Dutch language, except the foreign languages, right? So um, I don't see students with a dictionary in class translating English into Mandarin, which I see in Malaysia, right? Good or bad, I, I'm not saying anything about this, but we have a homogenous group, so we don't waste time, right? Mm -hmm. They already have done research papers, academic papers in their final two years in high school. Right. Um, they've done presentations and so on. So it's, and at the same time, the homo, I mean, it's homogenous at the same time, it's also much more diverse because they have all been trained to be independent, creative, think for themselves. I mean, I've seen at Taylor's, for example, students in performing arts. And uh, when I talk to them, for many of them, it's the first time ever they've had their face made up or act a role. I mean, that's unheard of in Belgium. I mean, you do that when you're 13. So they come in, I think our education is also more theoretical and abstract and our students are very demanding and they expect you to provide quality so that they don't want to be handheld and there are no coursework assignments. Mostly there are no coursework assignments because it's higher education. 
You want coursework assignments? Secondary education, where the learning has to be structured for the student. In higher education, it's a contradiction to want high quality graduates while over the two or three years, you're going to practically baby step and spoon feed them to that point. It's a bit sink or swim. Now, people have criticized the Belgian system because it's brutal. If you cannot cope with the challenges of being a higher education student, maybe you don't belong here, right? And when I was 18, 19, it would go like this. You can always work in a factory putting tin cans in a box. That's harsh. <laughs> it's a brutal system, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Well, of course, harsh. work in your family business and become extremely well off and rich and have your BMW 7 Series by the time you're 28. Okay. But um, so the system is meant to separate. So um, in the early SEMs or years, we don't usually have SEMs. It's a one year uh, uh, program. So what happens is this ruthless brutal selection, usually to the point that up to 60% might get culled in the first year. Wow. Okay. What do they do? Okay. We call that the cascading system. You try high, right? Mm -hmm. I want to be a lawyer. Okay, you go to law. You fail. You reset. You try again. Okay. Are your parents well off? You can reset a couple of times, right? <laughs> if not, you go down. You want to stay in the legal profession? You do something paralegal, diploma, cert, like this. Right. This is the hierarchy, medicine, engineering, law. And then anything that's STEM, chemistry, physics, maths. I did maths, by the way, first. And then you have everything else, which is you know, sociology, philosophy. You want to disappoint your parents, you say, as the only son, I think I want to study art history. Really? Is, is that poorly regarded in Belgium? <laughs> no, I just, this is just a half joke because it used to be when, uh, when higher education was gradually opening up to women, I mean, it took a long time, then it's usually that's where they ended up because they were not supposed to work when they got married. So they would do something for personal development. But anyway, that system is, is very selective. People say it's costly because it's it's nobody pays, right? I mean, it's easier for you to learn Dutch and come to Belgium and barely pay. And I know some of my friends in Malaysia, they put their kids through the German school and the French lycée, and then they go and study in France and Germany. Right. Um, anyway, we have that system where they select. It also means that as of the second year and so on, Nobody fails anymore because you have learned how to study. And this does not mean every single detail, every single line, because one of the main things we all have to learn is what is background, what is foreground, what is gist, what is crucial, important, what are the takeaways, what is perhaps nice to know, the need to know and the nice to know. And these are simple things and dealing with volume. Um, we all, we have a system of final exams. No better way to separate the ones who can from count, the shysters, the cutters of corners, the goring, 
<laughs> from the real deal, the genuine ones, is to have an individual final exam. And then people say, of course, yeah, but then it's all like memory-based. No, no, not necessarily, right? You have application questions, you have puzzles, problems, cases as well. And no choice. When I did my master's in Britain, I was, we had a choice. We had section three, answer one of the three questions. I thought, what kind of a childish system is this? The professor decides these are the questions, right? But I know the argument is, you pick the one where you can shine most. Well, if I'm stepping onto a plane, I wouldn't want a pilot that went through an exam where he or she could choose the questions that they found easier. But yeah, it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. It's not a dentist. It's not a doctor. It's it's only only language or communication. I don't like that. I mean, anyway, so I started off with 300 in my first year and the next year with 120. I was one of them. I was a triple A student, right? I took it seriously. Because I had failed maths first, huh? that's why. <laughs> so, um, how are they different? I think we are. We get to that point of what I call a more academic one faster, but um, so even for yourself, study skills, especially the study skills. In order to excel academically, you need a baseline intelligence. You need to be motivated. But the one factor that contributes the most to academic performance is study skills. Now, of course, you can go to classes and people can train you how to study, but you still have to do it yourself, right? Right. And if it's all PowerPoints and bullets and and pre-pulped for easy consumption, I don't think that's that's good. But uh, when people question me, I always say, yeah, Belgium has 10 Nobel Prize winners. So even you have to uh, adapt to from the Belgian system to the British system. And then the Malaysian system was derived from the British system with a yeah. few modifications yeah. and you know further adjustments needed on your part. <laughs> but I can see I can see benefits to both, and I think different probably different types of students will benefit more from one system or the other. The British system uh, was very much based on personal reading, which is I think what Malaysia has decided to skip. Right. So when I was in a master's level. We had reading lists, articles and books, and you went to a tutorial, I can tell you, you'd better be prepared. Oh yeah. I'm not sure if you watched How to Get Away with Murder, yeah, this kind of uh, series or American films where you have you know, law school scenes, yep. the professors are not faffing around. Eh? They have a question and they look in that auditorium, lecture hall, and they pick a name. And if you don't know the answer to that question, you have lost your place in that course. Oh, yeah. uh, you can't do that here. And that's, in Belgium, we wouldn't do that either because we would not put people publicly. There will be an exam, right? We will find out later. But the US is a lot more competitive. So these students are really trying to shine. So when there is a question, everybody raises their hand. It's like primary school, right? Yeah. Everybody raises their hand. Yep. Yeah. But the difference between primary school and university is most of them know the answer, right? Primary school, they just go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, these are differences, but I, of course you have to adapt. The first thing I learned was that a lot of expats I know in education, they have to make peace with the system and they have to uh, find a justification. 
or they will not uh, stay very long. Um, so you need to see the benefits and you need to adapt and uh, there is a kind of inclusive system and if somebody fails, it's uh, the teacher, right? Bad teacher. My first uh, exam in Taylor's, I think 35% uh, flunked, which I thought was an objective. Then my head's on the block, right? I have to write a 10-page report and see the Minister of Education or the President of Malaysia's Association for, for Private Universities personally, <laughs> and they will ostracize me. Um, so 20 percent how, how sorry and so how did the um the evaluation student evaluation turn out for that semester yeah that's the other thing right uh how much power do you give students huh is it possible the student can be wrong or is the student always right one student wants the soup the the soup i am to be a little spicier the other student wants it to be a bit more salty more I am or less. I mean, how do you do this, right? Yeah. Do you trust the chef or you don't trust the chef? There is room for feedback from students, definitely. But at the same time, we feel in Belgium that there is room for eccentricity. And there is even room for horrible teachers that will teach you something else. How to deal with a horrible person. I've had the worst professors, but it doesn't stop me from learning because they usually would leave you alone, right? And if there are issues, we would fight. But I know it's a balancing act. It's not something that, but uh, again, good ideas often get pushed. And of course, if it's all about dollars and cents and it's the bottom line, and then apparently then it's about soft grading, this is the problem. I can't fail. Paying is passing. The ones who fail are the ones who don't submit or uh, caught academic misconduct. Okay, that's one thing. I don't want to compromise my professional ethics and my standards. Okay, what do you do? Remember what I said earlier, I have a cert in teaching English for business. Right. I freelanced in companies where we don't have exams, right? Mm -hmm. But I need to have a contract, uh, five weeks middle management presentation skills in english or negotiation skills or basic grammar or uh for phone operators back then telephone skills okay i have a contract training manager agency myself i need to deliver okay we cannot uh show that we have met uh, the contracts deliverables through exams because it's not an academic thing so what I do is I work hard with each and every student to get them to that level. So I transferred that system into uh, Malaysian education, which means I work with every student to get, initially I wouldn't look at the assignments till it was submission date. Now I say we work on the drafts together till I get an A out of you. And it works, but it actually means the students pay not enough, right? Because I'm doing one-to-one -one tuition right. on my own time. If they have an A, I can honestly say they worked for the A, they worked with me, and you get good results. And some are a little more stubborn or, you know, I don't know, I mean, they're just young also, they don't submit on time. Uh, they will always give a second, third chance anyway. So when I have 
But the funny thing in Winston is this, this puts me also into trouble because you cannot have all A's then. Yeah. And I've been forced recently to what we call to grade on the curve. Yep. So what's so suspicious about having 25 students who all have an A? Oh no, we don't want that either. So it's it's a bit hypocritical, right? <laughs> The bell curve looks like, oh, the marking is so uh, nuanced. You mentioned that there are many reasons why you remain in Malaysia, right? But let's also look at, you know, what are those things, right? I won't keep this question really late because uh, for good reasons. <laughs> so what about those things that you dislike or things which stresses you out about Malaysia? Oh yeah, I mean, it's of course, a long list of things that in addition to, you know, we talk about work perhaps a little too much, but uh, the things that stressed me out were the things I was not ready for, right? So it's something that surprises oh, yeah. you. Yeah. And the one thing that I had to come to terms with, if you like, or to find ways of handling is in order to be an expert in Malaysia, you need to have strong resilience, a strong backbone, because it's not easy. It's a constant form-filling activity, right? So I didn't know how much paperwork that would involve. I cannot compare because in the US and the UK, I did not move there, right? So I didn't know that just being here would take up so much of my energy, uh, immigration, employment pass, so if you're not a citizen or uh, you don't have a PR, then just being somewhere uh, is quite a challenge. And it made me look at what's happening in Belgium with lots of undocumented immigrants and uh, illegal aliens. I think the U.S. It made me look at that differently, right? So right. that's uh, so you have to be patient. Huh? Um, it's a bit of an Olympian challenge, I think. But what I learned along the way is you have to be prepared for anything. So I would go to official also at UM, I remember, I would go with a backpack, practically anything that I could think of. So I'll give you an example. We need uh, hard copies of your passport. Yeah. Winston, that's simple enough. No, it isn't. Full color, black and white. One page per A4 or two-sided. Every single page, including the cover or not blown up version of your biometric page and maybe your RPT or something or not. You go to one, please use a blue pen. You go elsewhere, you have filled in the form with a blue pen. No, it's Tuesday, it has to be a black pen. <laughs> so you need to become very calm, right? You have to develop a kind of Zen attitude. And the thing that uh, gives you a lot of courage is that eventually it gets done, right? I have not had any negative experience, but you have to be willing to learn. I always say in Malaysia, the knowledge is collectively stored. It's not in the head of one person, but if you're dealing with one person, the knowledge will be partial. So the blue pen, well, the black pen requirement on Tuesday, if I come back another Tuesday and there is somebody else, it may be a different color. I'm using it metaphorically, right? Because it's never been like this, but um, there is something there that you then have to jot down. So what I thought was I have, uh, I'm a researcher. Okay, I'm just gonna wear my research hat. 
observational research, interviews, right. surveys among <laughs> friends. Uh, do I need to bring a water bottle? Is that going to take a long time? Um, usually I go as early as I can. I'd rather wait 60 minutes outside a locked door and be first and come later, right? So, I mean, yeah. these are things. But it's a challenge and then you have to look at how how much do you want it because it's a means to an end and then you develop the skills. So I think I also worked with a runner a couple of times. I also had some people helping me when I got my driver's license, for instance. Right. I remember uh, the first time I was a bit confused. I didn't think I read the signs well enough and I, I was in a line of people whose cars had been impounded and lost their driving <laughs> So I was so <laughs> with, with the criminals, if you like, it was and then, uh, and of course, um, the other thing I was stressing me out was having to drive on the wrong side of the road. Huh? <laughs> I had a couple of accidents. Yeah, I had a couple of accidents. Yeah. The other thing I had to learn was to respect the, the climate as well. Um, coming from Europe, where you know having a nice tan is is a is a status symbol, or it's one that makes you look slightly more appetizing than the sort of real paleness that you might sometimes have ghostly paleness that you might have but i think initially i was not um respectful of the weather in the sense that i thought i can go out anytime now i know i have to wear a cap there is a hot hour for a reason oh, yeah. i think I, I wasted a lot of time just uh, some i mean conking out on my bed after 15 minutes in the sun right at the wrong time yeah. of the day I still struggle with that every now and then. <laughs> Living I thought it was drilled into kids. I thought that kids learn that. Uh, I thought that it was something that I wouldn't know because I was just. Uh, no, you got people running around without sunblocks and and without a cap, and yeah. without water bottles. So you know that <laughs> that rule doesn't apply to everyone. Yeah. SPF SPF eighty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. You have 8,000. Being what they call you as Angmo or Matsale for Caucasians, right? Did you ever feel you were single out more often? And of course, were they mostly positives or negatives? It's hard to say. Of course, people would not call me anything to my face. I remember one incident and I, I was sort of uh, what is the word? I was curious, what are they going to call me, right? Because we, we learn all these what? words you can't say. So if somebody gets upset with my behavior, what would be the racial slur? So, <laughs> uh, so I, the, the, but that was just only once. And generally, I think it cuts two ways because um, for me to get any kind of negative reaction from a Malaysian, no matter which of the how many 26 or 30 ethnic groups you may or may not be from and all the the, the, the hybrids and, and and all the gray areas uh, um, it's a two-way thing so um so i feel that of course uh, i would be bumping into more like cultural differences that we learn about and Initially, you think it, there is no truth in them, but but sort of that hierarchical thing. I mean, that's something that I I definitely struggle with even till this day. I don't give face, right? I don't give face if you don't deserve it, and I'm very direct. And um, I know that's not always the best tactic and strategy, and I think it comes across as a lot more disrespectful than it is because I'm from a 
a different cultural background where we can argue and people think, oh, this is a fight, but this is just a, a, a debate during a meeting. Oh, yeah. And I learned quickly in Malaysia, you don't speak in a meeting, right? And you uh, don't interrupt. If, yeah, I mean, you can defend yourselves. I mean, yeah. but I felt that I was not there for my ideas, but I think I also had to get perhaps a little bit used to how private sector unis work, right? You, uh, I guess it depends who's in the meeting, yeah. Right. Yeah, and what it is about, I guess, yeah. In Belgium, we are used to a bottom-up hierarchy. I'm not sure if you've met that term. It's a yeah, bottom-up yeah. hierarchy, meaning we accept one of us as our leader, but you have to prove it as well. Oh, yeah. You earn it. Yep. And that's why we can be very relaxed among each other. Also because these positions, especially in academe, they rotate. Yeah. yeah. You're the head today, I might be the head tomorrow. Yep. Uh, but in a top-down hierarchy, not the bottom-up hierarchy, in a top-down one, it's a little more, for me, difficult. Yeah, higher power distance. Come yeah. on, Malaysia's got the highest power distance ever, right? <laughs> yeah. And I sometimes feel it's used uh, in a kind of insincere way that sort of, yeah, what do we all think? I felt that question was not always sincere. It's more meant, I was in meetings with, I mean, that's another thing. Meetings can go up to 30, 50 people, even senior management meetings I was in at BUC, like 25 people, that's not a meeting, right? That's a riot. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the big honcho then says, yeah, what do you all think? And I made a mistake a few times of actually sharing what I thought, but no, this is meant to see who's on my side. And if you're not on my side and you're stupid enough to give a dissenting opinion, you walk around with a target on your back. So I know the only thing that you're supposed to say is this. It's wonderful that I mean, the proposal was so clear. I think it's going to move Bajaya forward. I think it's going to bring a success uh, financially. So you do that kind of uh, laudatio, right? Yep. which can also be insincere. Yeah. And then you Again, might as well not ask people for an opinion. You might just say, this is the plan, and now we're going to execute the plan. It's like, like a military thing. So these are sort of differences which I run into, the idea of the boss. When I was head of department, the first thing I told my team was this, don't call me boss. I'm not the boss. I'm the head of department. It's an academic leadership position. It comes with certain things to do, which may be different from yours. Usually you have more decisions to make, which may affect you. If you lower down the scale, you don't take a lot of decisions. But one day you can be, and I'm not your boss. This is not my show here, right? I'm just a pawn into the whole hierarchy. But of course I tried to put my stamp on it. So. Uh, I'm also, Winston, not easily offended, I think. So, um, and most of the time it was positive. I remember once at Taylor's that we were in a meeting, uh, school board, and then I, th I thought it was one of a uh, very nice memory. And then we were talking about maybe uh, Yui and, and the Brits and so on and so forth and everyone. And, then, and all of a sudden it was, oh, we're talking about white people here, and there is one of them is actually here at the table, but they've completely ignored me because they forget that I... I said, I, I like that. Then you have sort of blended in, usually because it's professionally. Uh, and I don't see myself, that's the thing. 
When I look around, I see all of you, but I don't see myself. So I forget often that I look the way I do. And I know people have sometimes reacted to me. Uh, I mean, that that's what I call that status inflation. Uh, I was driving a, a Suzuki Swift initially. Right. I remember that one, yep. Yeah, yeah, a black. And I get out of the car somewhere and somebody sees me get out of the car and says, uh, and the, the number plate was, uh, I mean, uh, Srava, right? Uh, Srava number plate. Uh, That's a Q plate, right? Yeah, the Q plate, correct. And um, that person that didn't know says, hey, oh, are you Australian? Do you work for Shell? <laughs> and then I thought, okay, what kind of assumptions are behind this? Apparently Shell is in Srava somewhere. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Miri, I think, yeah. Miri, okay. Yeah. You know, maybe there are a lot of Australians there. People always want me to be Australian. Even if I give my name, you can see my name there. It's not an Australian name, is it? Australian carry very, all kinds of names, Antun. <laughs> it's a very Flemish name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we make assumptions, but uh, once I knew I had an answer ready, which was if I worked for Shell, I wouldn't be driving a Suzuki Swift, right? <laughs> As an expat. Uh, uh, by the way, I don't hang out with the expats here. I tried initially. Generally, the Belgians are not very clubbable. So we uh, and other expats are, you know, it's not because you're from Europe that you have to hang together. So, uh, right. so I forget about this a lot. So I and I, I'm also I have to say that I think I was privileged or lucky enough to grow up in a in a in a family that is. Uh, open-minded, colorblind, uh, accepting of, uh, we would have our own open house. I, so you picked it up from your parents that um, it's not strange or danger, right? Uh, it's either strange or danger or it's exotic makes erotic. I think we were more like exotic is interesting, it's different. Let's find out, okay? Be curious about um, people from different parts of the world, people that look different, have different, you know, styles, habits, and not judgmental. I mean, of course, we judge all the time, we evaluate, but uh, initially you have to just try and learn and, uh, and see what you have to learn personally from being among diverse others, which is anyway the norm, isn't it? Um, and when I send pictures back home, or at least when my siblings would, you know, when I used to do a lot of Facebook and Instagram, right. they often would make that same comment and they say, oh my goodness, it's so, so diverse. <laughs> I mean, I, I show a picture of um, a team or something, it's diverse and it's much more mono, right, in, in Europe. Yeah. It's changing, of course. So I, I see that as a, as a, it's good training ground as a, as a benefit as well. And our differences are also beyond us in a sense that um, I'm a big fan of Robert Sapolsky, who is a Stanford University uh, professor. And when he talks about culture, he says there is this 100,000 years, right? Going back to nomadic lifestyles, yeah. pastoralists, of course, agriculture. And, and, and some of that is yeah, I mean, the big difference that they say between, okay, let's do this visually. I'm from the West. I'm not from America, I always say, and Winston is Asian. So 
Winston's thinking should be more holistic and mine should be more analytical. And there are experiments where people look at a picture and if something is in focus, an Asian mind, not you, that mind would see everything. A Western mind would only see the one in focus, the cow in the field, not the field. Whereas when you ask questions about that same picture, Winston might have spotted, I mean, unknown to him, that there is a farmhouse in the distance uh, with a red roof and that's something. Uh, you have to be careful about this because it's not deterministic. Yeah? And there's a lot of studies into Asian Americans to see how, to what extent, our sort of biological makeup, our cognitive architecture sort of works through. But it's, it's to some extent, I find that it's true, right? There is something that you can experience. Uh, so some of the issues I've had was at which level are we talking? The general category or, or a member of the class? So I remember at UM, I had this big argument about money. And then they say, it's, it's wrong, you know? No, no, I'm talking about gaji pokok, I'm talking about allowance, I'm talking about the, the, the detail. Right. And it was sort of frustrating the person I was talking to at uh, Bendahari, yeah. because yeah. it's all money. And I understand that's the general category, money, income. Yeah. But I was had a question about something very specific. And I think by being me, maybe a bit direct, maybe a bit too uh, pushy, maybe a bit sort of, I don't get a straight answer out of this person. I, yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of... Turning them around. I, think, <laughs> I, came, I, came, I came back, I asked a couple of people, came back the next day, right? I mean, as I say, eventually everything gets solved. So, so it, and that's the problem, Winston, I experienced by being here longer that you forget about it and that you're actually not improving. I'm not saying that I, 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 you, there is initially there was an awareness and a willingness or a need on my part to study and try. And, but at some point I also gave up because I thought superficially I can, of course, take off my shoes and I can eat with chopsticks since I, I, I could already eat with chopsticks before I came to Malaysia. So you can copy all of this, but there's a number of things, for example, in problem solving, logical analysis, critical thinking, which is different. I remember once when we had with uh, Taylor's uh, sort of a, a, a getaway thing, management, and we were all in this big ballroom around the round table, oh, it's a typical thing, the round table. Uh, and we had to answer a question at school level. So the problem was stated, maybe on a PowerPoint slide. And I'll show you what happens, right? So everyone is around the table. Okay, we're going to solve this together. And I was doing this. I need to read what we have to do on my own, quietly, covering my ears, full concentration. And then what I think we have to do, I'll bring into the group. By the time I was there, the problem had already been solved by the group. And I was thinking arrogantly, what is the quality of this decision? I mean, nobody's done any analysis of the issue. Just talk, you know, endlessly, and then something comes up. Arrogant, right? 
But then I realized also, it's not black and white, but that decision has the buy-in of the whole group, right? When you reach, I mean, not you personally, but when in that system, after 20, 30 minutes, there is a solution to the problem, yes. regardless of, a, of individual stages in which you analyze and maybe have more information. When you talk your way through this intense interaction, because at one point, one of my colleagues said, you're not participating. And I was about to say, you're giving me a headache. <laughs> That happens, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, but then I thought through that particular system, you have the buy-in. You don't need to convince someone because it's already done. Was there a bit of hierarchical pressure? I think there was. But even then, you don't rock the boat through a simple solution to a problem. I mean, to, to, through that mechanism, the community stays the way it is. There is no competition. Even if the leader or the, the head of school was maybe steering everyone in a certain direction, that's why you have a leader, right? Right. And I was doing that Western thing, which is, this is me, my brain, the task, analysis, and then you have yours, and then we uh, compare notes, and then there will have to be a convincing persuasion logical argumentation, maybe some tears if that's necessary, and tantrums, and then we will work on it. And then again, you go through that same thing. So, so the question is always, what do you want? And if you want the, the community to survive, then I think some systems are better. Or if you prioritize the collective status quo, but if you don't value that as much and you think we need to have the best solution at the lowest cost with the highest impact, blah, 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 in which no matter where it comes from, uh, and then it's about being right based on evidence, arguments, and maybe clever talking. The Brits are good at the talking, for example. Uh, that's why there are so many issues between the European Union, because I'm a European Union product. And, in Brexit uh, Islanders anyway. So these are things where, um, but that, that, that doesn't get to a point where people are pointing fingers and where, to me, it's more like, oh yeah, okay, uh, what do I have to learn here? And and these are things that I, I think I, I really appreciate, but I, deep down, I might still sort of find it difficult, you know? I'm not sure if you can relate to this because you've been overseas. I mean, you lived in a different place as well. Uh, somewhat, um, there's a difference somewhat, in the, yeah. um, decision making styles. Yeah, um, decision, yeah, small group decision making. The collective versus the individual, the yeah. the yeah. you know the the hurried um, decision making style because you know um, being unable to deal with certain uh, uncertainties. Yeah, so yeah. Um, that whole idea of being uh, somewhat high, medium to high uncertainty avoidance. So if you've got an issue, we have to sort this out right now. Yeah, yeah. We do that? no, that's a good point. That's a good point because I'm, I'm definitely not, I'm not cool or not comfortable with a lot of ambiguity and so on. Oh, yeah. yep. Just quickly, yep. the other thing I discovered when I was head, I had about 10 people in my team. If I wanted to make them feel uncomfortable, I had to simply apologize for a mistake I had made. They didn't like that because you're not supposed to apologize. They would all look and get very, 
nervous, right? Because the head of the department was apologizing. Yeah. They were expecting that, me to yeah. point at someone and say, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's because of this whole cultural difference whereby, again, that whole power distance, right? Um, yeah. Like, the guy at the top is almost infallible. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he's the one that assigns the blame, not, okay, put his hands up and say, I, I apologize. <laughs> Most of the racism I experienced in Malaysia was what I call white on white. Oh, that happens. Yeah, there's a lot of that, right? I'm a non-native speaker of English. I'm not Commonwealth. I'm from mainland Europe, the enemy. So among a lot of people I've met here, I, yeah, I, I don't feel like I, I get a good treatment. Yeah. There is an idea of the boys from Britain who have, you know, ramified themselves across higher education in Malaysia. They want to keep that to themselves. And I had a few negative experiences in that way, but white on white, right? Um, um, it's sort of that uh, inward looking, yeah? It's an island, I mean, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Antun. So, one last question. Okay. Give one or two key reasons why you had called Malaysia home during this time. You know, home is a kind of an emotionally charged concept, right? And oh, I, yeah. I, I, how many homes can we have? Will the place where you were born always be the only home? Can you rehome yourself? <laughs> like a, I think home and happiness to me is sort of related, right? Because uh, in the history of ideas, by the way, happiness didn't feature till maybe in the 19th century. And before that, you were not supposed to think about being happy. But we live in a, in a, in a century that where happiness is seen to be uh, valuable. And, and so we want our lives to be meaningful. We want to do things with purpose. Oprah Winfrey always talks about that. Huh? The purpose of <laughs> oh, yeah. life, not a, don't live your life randomly, make choices, go after things that you uh, find is important. So a little bit of that might be goal setting. Um, I'm not a big goal setter. I think I like to think about sniffing out opportunities and coming back to what Malaysia definitely has done for me is allowing me to follow through on opportunities you know, I went up and down the country with Hardip to for internal marketing. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Yes. Workshops, talks, working with the Star newspaper. Uh, I was wonderful, right? That's that's an opportunity, right? I didn't come to Malaysia with a goal to be involved in this. I, I did a fashion show at uh, Taylor's in my second year, I guess, with students. Yep, yep, uh, I remember one of that. One yeah. Comfests, so things like this. So um, and. Um, in that mix of or in that equation of happiness to me you always have an element of hope and optimism what i said about the sense of space i also get that in malaysia um, i've been to down to singapore a couple of times but it's always like when you cross back into malaysia you feel like oh i can go anywhere right i can take a bike or a motorbike preferably you can go on a road trip and you can go I mean to Rangoon I guess I don't know how far you can go yeah, and, possibly, yeah. <laughs> not to be recommended one of the key reasons then uh, for having that feeling that I'm home is definitely with them in a, it's been a happy period I think uh, generally speaking where I'm doing meaningful work where I I feel I can contribute to a uh, 
uh, even more than just students and colleagues. I've been involved in some, you know, charity projects. I've, um, yeah, about public broadcasting with Dr. Rama. We worked for RTM and, and the yeah. Asian Pacific Institute for Broadcasting Development. I feel that I've been, you know, fortunate enough to. By the way, uh, if you want to book me, I, I never charge, right? If you want to book me for a talk or a motivational one, I was recently at. I've been here long enough to have alumni who are in their early 30s, and one of them at UITM, a lecturer, asked me to talk about my journey through linguistics and a little bit of my development. That was nice. I mean, um, and again. Um, because this is coming to an end as well. I think if there's been one or two nuggets or takeaways, that's even if it's in opposition to what I said, I think it's good. So, uh, and then the climate here is one where there is always a sense of, you know, I play volleyball and every sport has its own philosophy, right? Yeah, yeah. So the things I like about volleyball is there is a net to begin with, <laughs> not a contact Come sport. Come on, so does badminton, so does yeah. <laughs> And you rotate. In the old system, there was no specialization, so you would rotate. Right. And because we have frequent rallies, we have a lot of rallies, it's not a football match where you have two attempts on goal and then a penalty shootout. How boring can that be? In <laughs> volleyball, you have always, and that's the philosophy, what I learned, there's always the next rally. Yep. You drop the ball, you 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 know you mess up, you you, you spike it out of, of court. There's the next rally before you have time to dwell on this. Oh yeah. And I think with Malaysia as well, there is always that sense of a new day. Uh, the next day is a new day, right? Dust yourself up and try again. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Dust yourself up and try again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you had a bad day, then the next day is a different day, and and uh, and. I've used the word before. I mean, there is a sense of that abundance, right? Mm. You don't have to go hungry. Of course, there is the B40. I'm aware of all of this, but uh, it's much more difficult to explain. It's a systemic, structural, uh, historical, I think. So, but, but generally, um, it's a rich, joyful country, right? It's a peaceful country. And uh, in that sense of uh, a new day. Um, and then, of course, uh, professionally, to me, I, I told about my earlier years, uh, but education has always been one of the most rewarding industries or disciplines or fields to be in. And, and um, I'm not saying teaching is its own reward, I mean, but um, I cannot imagine any, doing anything else. Uh, I think it might become very repetitive. And I think, um, I hope many of you who are also lecturers that we are privileged because we can learn with our students and we can, you know, be a, keep abreast and, you know, um, yeah. And the research we do is interesting. And I think that's, that's yeah, that, that's some of the reasons. I, I think if you take that away, I mean, if I wasn't happy and I would work perhaps elsewhere, it may be more of a challenge or it would make not or Malaysia would not have that sort of rejuvenation and, and, and what's the word, that capacity to uh, reinvent itself on a day-by-day -day basis. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rantun. Thank you so much me, for huh? your time. Wow, there's so many nuggets of gold there for me to dissect through. Good. Uh, yeah, wow. Always epic talking to you, Antun. Very, very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Kopitiam Conversations.